Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. WABE in Atlanta. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up a little bit later in the program, Georgia Department of Labor Commissioner Mark Butler gives an update on the backlog of unemployment claims, the ongoing challenges in processing those claims, and responds to a Senate bill which would create a chief labor officer appointed by the governor and confirmed by the Senate. That's later in the program. But first, appointment slots for the COVID-19 vaccine, well, it filled up quickly in this area yesterday. And now yesterday, of course, marked the start for all Georgians over the age of 55 to become eligible for the vaccination, as well as those 16 years older with certain medical, 16 years and older with certain medical conditions. Now, at this time, the Georgia Department of Public Health reports more than 2.74 million shots have been administered. Still, the number of new cases continue to rise as well. Now, we should note, many of you have emailed and wanted to know how do you find out where you can get this vaccine. Well, there are two websites we're going to give you. As Grace Walker's always, my producer's always on it, Grace, we're going to tell them to go to vaccinefinder.org. And what's the other one? Georgia Department of Public Health. I cannot tell you where to get a vaccine. I'm just going to point you to a website. But I appreciate y'all having that much confidence in me. Now, as we talk about the number of new cases, well, they continue to rise in Georgia. Yesterday, 866 cases were confirmed. This brings the total number of cases since last March to 836,344. In total, 15,918 deaths have been confirmed, and 57,383 Georgians in total have been hospitalized. Now, in some related news to all of this, a member of Georgia Tech's men's basketball team has tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, Yellow Jackets coach Josh Pastner says the player is asymptomatic and will isolate in Indianapolis per the CDC guidelines. Now, Apparently, this will not affect the team's ability to play in this upcoming NCAA tournament, which starts this week, March Madness. I hope it doesn't mess up your brackets. But the Yellow Jackets are scheduled to play Loyola Chicago Friday evening in the first round of the tournament. And speaking of the tournament, the Georgia Tech women's team will also be dancing, cliche, in their NCAA tournament for the first time since 2014. The Yellow Jackets received an at-large bid for this year's Division I women's basketball tournament. Coming in as a fifth seed, the Yellow Jackets will play a number 12 seed, Stephen F. Austin, on Sunday. Best of luck to both teams. We're back in a moment. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. GreaterAtlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100 mile coast. A landscape unlike any other, Georgia's coast is home to vital communities and people from all walks of life fighting to protect it. Help keep Georgia's coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. 
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. An end to no excuse absentee voting, banning voting on Sunday, and eliminating automatic voter registration. These are just a few of the changes some Georgia Republican-backed proposed measures have been, as you you don't know, you do know they've been debated down at the Capitol. Now, proponents believe the changes are necessary, and they tout it's to ensure voter confidence in the state's election system, despite there has been no evidence of voter fraud this past November election. But Democrats, and we should note some Republicans have spoken out against some of these proposed changes, and researchers and elections experts at the Brennan Center for Justice have been tracking these voting bills in Georgia and nationwide. And we're going to bring back to the program Elijah Swearenbecker. She serves as a counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center. She joins me now to give the latest and an update and share the findings of another report which analyzes these bills and the impact on black voters. Eliza, thanks for taking the time. Y'all have been busy. I'm glad you came back. Nice to be back with you. Thanks for having me. Let me ask you this. Did you all, had you, were you all planning to do a report on this or as more and more, and we know that Georgia it's always been in the news about this lately, but did you all plan to do another report as it relates to black voters? Or did you realize, you know what, let's go ahead and, and conduct a report to go ahead and come up with these findings? Well, we let the facts lead us. And when we saw the the very many provisions that are in two of the key omnibus bills out of Georgia, SB 241 mm-hmm. and 531, we wanted to take a look at what those policies would do to voters in Georgia and particularly for black voters in Georgia. So we first ran the analysis just to see what it would show. And what we learned is that a, a cutback on no excuse mail voting and, and requiring excuses for mail voting would have a big impact on black voters and eliminating Sunday early voting would have a big impact on black voters. And so th- that drove us to, to report out our research, but certainly that wasn't something we were, uh, to do, but we we do let the data drive our reporting. And we're going to talk more about the data in a moment because for folks that might be familiar, may, may not be familiar with this, when you were on last time and you told us at that time, so far, 33 states had introduced or pre-filed or carried more than 165 bills is what you all considered restrictive voting. Can you give an update on that, where that number stands now? Are we Did it decline? Did it increase? Unfortunately, it has increased. And as of just February 19th, we found that 43 states have introduced over 250 bills to restrict voting access. And I can tell you that in the last month, that number is continuing to creep up. So legislators across the country continue to introduce bills that would make it harder for Americans to vote. 43 states, 250 measures. What do you make of that? As a researcher, going up, you know, I'm not asking for your personal opinion, but as a researcher, as an analyst, I got to ask, what what do you make of that? Well, I think we're seeing an effort at voter suppression that is really unprecedented since Jim Crow. As Stacey Abrams has said, these bills are Jim Crow in a suit and tie. There are efforts to make it harder for Americans to vote across the country. This is a concerted effort in most states across the nation. And it really is deeply contrary to our democratic principles and the idea that every American should be able to freely, fairly, and equally participate in our democratic process. 
And Elijah, for those who may not understand, when we talk about restrictive measures, let me give that definition for them. When we talk about restrictive measures at the Brennan Center, what we mean are policies that are going to make it harder for voters to cast their ballots, Mm -hmm. whether making it harder for them to register, making it harder for them to stay on the rolls, or making it harder for them to show up on election day or cast their ballots by mail, whatever method of voting a voter tends to use, a policy that is going to make it more difficult, put greater burdens on the voter, that's something that we call restrictive. And how is that different or how does that vary from what you all consider an expansive bill? So an expansive bill is the flip side of that coin. They are policies that make it easier for a voter to get registered, like automatic voter registration, mm-hmm. that and easier for a voter to have access to a mail ballot, to have access to early voting, to have access to polling places because it makes polling places more accessible or open during longer hours, for example. And can you give us the top four states who are... I think Georgia's in this, but can you give us those states that have proposed the most changes to the voting system in terms of the restrictive? Well, the states that are proposing many changes to the voting system in ways that are restrictive and in and in ways that are particularly concerning right mm-hmm. now are Georgia leading the way, Arizona, and also Texas, where we've seen a number of new bills introduced over the last several days to make it harder for voters to cast their ballots. When you all conducted this latest report um, and you looked at these measures for someone listening and says, okay, but what are the metrics involved? What is the assessment? Someone listening may say, well, it's not just fair to say it's going to impact black people. How, what are you using? What data did you all use to come up with your findings? Well, the data we used was the data from the Georgia Secretary of State reflecting, for example, who uses mail voting, who used it in 2020 and who has used it in the past, and also reflecting who typically votes on Sundays during early voting. Um, And the the Georgia Secretary of State breaks down that data by racial demographics. So Mm -hmm. we know, for example, that black voters voted by mail in greater numbers last year than they had done in previous years. I think that should answer that folks' questions and who emailed me. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Elijah Swearenbecker. She serves as a counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice. And we're getting an update on bills proposing changes to so many states' voting systems, of course, here in Georgia and throughout the nation, particularly their impact on black voters. So this recent analysis found that legislation would, quote, disproportionately hurt black voters. Are you specifically talking about then, as you just mentioned, the Sunday and the absentee? Is that would, would those two qualify for disproportionately hurting black voters? Yes, those are the provisions that we analyze. And what we found was that the effort to eliminate no excuse mail voting, but to create an exception for voters who are 65 years or older, for example, would favor white voters because the voters who are 65 and older who tend to vote by mail are whiter than the rest of the population of voters that tend to vote by mail. So a carve out that favors voters 65 years and older is going to favor white voters and disfavor black voters. Is Senate Bill 241 one of those? Yes. Hmm. If these measures do pass, Elijah, and based on your expertise, you anticipate legal challenges as an attorney yourself, which you are. 
Yeah, I think we do anticipate litigation if these measures pass and other restrictive measures pass across the country. Iowa was one of the first states in the country to pass and sign a bill to restrict voting and it strict and it severely limited the early voting days in that state. And shortly after that bill was signed by the governor there, they have faced a legal challenge. So that I think is a sign of things to come for many of these restrictive bills. I want to go back to also Senate Bill 71 for a moment, because this is seen as a movement in a Senate that would make being 75 or older a valid excuse. But you all saw that as also skewing toward more white voters. Is that true? Yes. So voters in the older age group tend to be disproportionately white relative to other voters who have used male. So if you are excluding all of the voters under 65 or under 75 from voting by mail, that means you are excluding more voters of color from voting by mail and you are allowing more white voters to vote by mail disproportionately. With these 43 states and these 250 measures, are you all able to extrapolate if most of these are considered changes to who voting on Sunday or absentee, no no excuse absentee ballot? What's the breakdown here? What leads the pack? By far, the restrictive measures are taking aim at mail voting. Um, nearly half of all the bills to restrict voting access across the country are trying to make it harder to vote by mail. And that includes limiting who can vote by mail, um, like we see in Georgia, limiting Mm -hmm. no mail voting, and then making it harder for the people who can vote by mail by making it harder for them to get an absentee ballot, making it harder for them to fill out an absentee ballot, and then making it harder for them to cast a ballot on time in a way that's gonna count. So really at every step of the way in the path to casting a mail ballot, we're seeing lawmakers try to make things harder for voters. You look at a state like Oregon, and not too long ago, we did a segment where we looked at Oregon, which everything is about all their elections are by mail. Have you all had, is there any research out there that concludes there's been an increase of voter fraud or any type of, you know, irregularities as it relates to, you know, like what's happening in Oregon? And if it is, where do we find it? That's a great question. And the answer is there have been studies of states that have used mail voting for a long time. And those studies reflect that there have been no major or really even minor issues in mail voting in terms of the security, in terms of any kind of incidences of voter fraud. Those those incidences are few and far between. They're extraordinarily rare. States that have used all mail voting historically have been very successful in doing so. And voters love it. They love having the flexibility of being able to vote from home. And Georgia voters know this. You all have had no excuse absentee voting for over a decade. Mm -hmm. It's been successful in the state. There have been no problems that have arisen because of this system, a system adopted previously under Republican leadership. So there's really no reason to um, take such a big U-turn on vote by mail in Georgia, um, except for what we're seeing, that it would limit young voters and black voters from accessing the mail ballot. And let me get your thoughts on this, because we talked about the legal challenges if in many states, including Georgia, that it does get passed and then it's approved by the governor. And here in Georgia, Governor Kemp would sign it. From a constitutional standpoint, do many of them hold, withstand a legal challenge? 
Well, that remains to be seen, and that's something that the courts are going to scrutinize. But I think in the cases of, for example, the provisions that we highlight, eliminating no excuse mail voting, yet creating a carve out for older voters and eliminating early voting on Sundays, those are provisions that quite clearly burden voters of color more than other voters. And, you know, strike me as discriminatory. That's something a court's going to have to on. But discriminatory voting laws violate federal law in this country. Um, and so it's something we will certainly be watching closely. And of course, the Supreme Court is already looking at another uh, amendment as it relates to uh, the Voting Rights Act. What do you make of all this? You, obviously, we know we're not in 1965, but clearly there are some issues that are, are still there's still problems here in 2021. Um, just your overall view on on where we are now in 2021, and we're still folks are still having to argue about the voting rights and particular, you know, passages of it. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that we're still fighting over the right to vote as a partisan political football. The right to vote is sacrosanct. It is a, should be available to everyone. It is not available to, as as one Arizona lawmaker said last week, certain kinds of voters are the right kinds of voters. It's available to all Americans. The fact that we're continuing to see efforts to restrict access to the ballot and particularly to restrict access to the ballot for black and brown voters, I think reflects the enormous amount of work we still have to do in protecting the right to vote for all Americans and particularly Americans of color. And it really underscores the urgency and the need to pass federal voting rights laws like the For the People Act, which Mm -hmm. already passed the House this year, and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act Mm -hmm. to restore and strengthen the Voting Rights Act. Because Americans need a federal floor, a federal standard that gives us all common sense election reforms and protects our right to vote free from racial discrimination. So between now and then, of course, we have our signy die day here in Georgia. What will you all be paying attention to? I imagine Georgia is going to be on that list. Yes, absolutely. Georgia will be on that list. And and the two omnibus bills I mentioned, SB 241 and HB 531, are going to be closely watched. We expect they will continue to move, but may, may also continue to get amended. We are closely watching bills in Arizona and Texas, as I mentioned, in Pennsylvania as well bills in Missouri and New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of restrictions bills making their way through state houses across the country. And we are keeping a close eye on them to to see what is moving um, and what the trends are in terms of the efforts to limit limit voting access. We'll need to bring you all back for that. Elijah Swearenberger, she serves as counsel in the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice. We'll include, we will have a link to the center's latest report on our website. Eliza, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, we appreciate the information. Thanks. Great to talk with you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Due to the pandemic, we know that know that the U.S. unemployment rate peaked at a level not experienced since the information was being collected back in 1948. Nearly every state saw a historic volume of unemployment claims. In fact, it reached a high of 14.8% nationwide back in April of 2020. Also, every state and the District of Columbia reached unemployment rates greater than their highest unemployment rate during the Great Recession. 
And recently, State Labor Commissioner Mark Butler told a Senate subcommittee that nationwide labor departments were met with some unprecedented challenges in not only processing unemployment claims, but also trying to keep up with some new implementations. We've been tasked uh, with basically about 80 percent of the responsibility, maybe even 85 percent of the responsibility uh, of all the financial assistance to America. Uh, when you talk about the labor, commi- labor departments around the nation, uh, we've also been tasked with uh, uh, putting together and administering uh, five to seven brand new programs that had never existed before last, last year, which actually has been a massive undertaking. Uh, a lot of that, I think, is um, maybe some poor planning uh, in Washington or some lack of not having the knowledge base up there anymore of knowing what labor departments do and what they do not do. Now, some state lawmakers charge still the backlog and allegations of unfair denied benefits may require leadership changes. So Senate Bill 156 would establish a chief labor officer, but that measure is not supported by all. Joining me now with an update to talk about all of this is Mark Butler, He, of course, is Georgia's labor commissioner, and he joins me now. Commissioner Butler, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, as always, for having me on. Let's begin with process, because I think this is probably, in in my opinion, as the host, I think this is a fair place to begin, because as it became clear of this enormous increase in the pandemic unemployment claims alone, did the department, did you alter your usual way of processing and handling well, what you knew would become a tremendous increase in work volume. That's question number one. Yes, absolutely. Matter of fact, we did some things here in Georgia that were very innovative. Uh, matter of fact, you know, they were so innovative. Some of the things that we've done, we ended up, uh, we were uh, granted an award at the end of the year uh, by a national organization. Uh, but one of the things that we did uh, was that we uh, took a system that was already in place that was, uh, meant to be used for temporary layoffs. Like a lot of people may know that, you know, like say from a, a factory has to shut down for mm-hmm. like a week or two because they're retooling or whatnot. There's a thing where it's called employer filed claims or internally here, we called it partial claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the definition of partial claims in this system was that, you know, typically when somebody files unemployment, that means they're no longer employed. They no longer have an employer uh, under a partial claim, you may not be getting paid that week, but you are still attached to the employer. Mm-hmm. Um, we insisted that employers, because when the, this first began, we were all kind of led to believe that maybe it was only going to be for a few weeks, you know, a couple of weeks, two, three weeks. Mm-hmm. We said, hey, this will be a perfect time. Well, let's do that. And the reason why we did that is because when an employer files for you, uh, it actually, that process goes super fast uh, because the employer is saying, hey, this is the person uh, we're having to shut down temporarily. Uh, we, yes, we want them paid. We agree with it. Uh, we're good with it. They're good with it. Um, and basically, your people are getting paid in about seven days okay. uh, versus an individual filing, which takes a little bit longer, uh, depending on the circumstance. For example, if you do get actually laid off and you have a separation notice from your employer Mm -hmm. that you were laid off and they agree with that, uh, basically after the 11th day after your claim is filed, typically you're starting to get payments released. However, uh, if you uh, quit your job or you're fired, that process all of a sudden takes longer Mm -hmm. because now we're uh, having to set up a time to call you, get information, 
uh, call your employer, get information, and we'll see what the two sides say. And then a determination is made based upon the current laws and rules that are on the books. So you implemented that last year? Yes, uh, at the very beginning. Matter of fact, we worked with the governor's office to make some rule changes uh, and had that put into place before uh, the shutdowns happened. Um, and since then, we have massaged that employer uh, filed system. And we're actually, it works so well um, that we're going to continue to use that in the future in certain situations, especially, obviously, if we have another large shutdown. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why, um, you know, you hear a lot of these accusations that are not actually based upon any fact or any kind of actual you know, numbers to back it up. But when you look at all the states, uh, in America, and this is act, come from this came from an actual U.S. DOL publication uh, back in February. Uh, we were 22nd uh, in the nation as far as timeliness of paying claims in that 14 uh, to 21 days, and there is no state in front of us that did as many claims and is as large as we are. And that was pandemic related, or just overall? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so we were we were the tarp top rated state of our size and there's nobody even like the the state closest to us mm-hmm. and size wise that was ahead of us did over a million fewer claims than we did now you told me last year another major hurdle was the technical or IT infrastructure implementation how long did it take to get that fully operational and are you satisfied with the IT aspect of it and the, the websites or whatever you have because you said that was something that that was a concern. You had to basically build a new model. Well, you know, our regular UI system was fine, Mm -hmm. uh, except for some of these extensions that they keep changing the rules on. Uh, The problem was the PUA program for Mm self-employed. There was no way and no state had a way to administer that. We all had to build a system from scratch. Uh, And just to kind of give you a little background, some people say, oh, no big deal. Uh, there's been kind of a movement in the nation over the last 10 to 15 years to modernize a lot of UI systems. There's been a very, there's been a lot of very large corporations, big brand names uh, that have tried to build UI systems and they have spent two and three and four years mm-hmm. and end up with an unsuccessful product. And we were tasked to basically build a new UI system just for uh, self-employed and they only gave us a few weeks. Okay, so Commissioner, I want to be clear. There is a separate process for that as well as a separate process for pandemic-related claims and your typical unemployment claim process. Is that what you're telling me? Okay, when you have a regular claim, mm-hmm. uh, regular claims, the thing that we've been doing for you know decades, uh, that is based upon basically an insurance model. Sure. Right? You have employers. They insure their employees. They send in wage reports for all the employees that are covered. And all, obviously, they send in the tax dollars to cover those, let's just call it premiums. All right. Mm-hmm. So we have all this data in our system for those types of individuals. Well, when Congress decided to create the PUA system, they said, OK, we want to give unemployment to self-employed gig workers. And by the way, those people are not in our system because they don't pay unemployment taxes. Sure. They are not covered by regular unemployment. We've never done that before. No state has done that. Sure. All right. I said, well, we want you to do that for them, too. And so we had to build a system not only uh, to, first of all, see if they would qualify for regular unemployment first, because that's in the regs. Mm-hmm. They go, OK, first, you got to check to see if they would qualify for regular unemployment. And if they don't, then you'll move them over here to this new system. And then you have to gather all of their information. And I mean, all of their information. You got to first of all, you got to verify who they are, mm-hmm. who they say they are. You've got to verify all their income now. The way these people are sending in and the way the rules are set up, they can send in, you know, 
bank statements. They can send in 1099s. They can all this different type of stuff. Now to check on that, you know, that's going to be a manual process because there's no way you can build something that's going to be able to look at all that and gather it and, you know, look sure. at a bank statement. And know, okay. This is business income. This is not business income. And so that can really slow things down. So did you have to hire additional help? Oh, yes. I mean, we've increased our headcount uh, by 50 percent uh, since this started. And that's very hard to do during a pandemic, because I want you to think about this. When all this first started and we saw the big, huge volume of claims, uh, everybody was told this is temporary. All right. You know, right. you're going to be back to work at your old job. So nobody's really looking for work. And the people that we typically would hire uh, that we're looking for, if you take a look at what they were getting from the state unemployment plus the additional 600, they were making the equivalent of about $50,000 a year, okay, on unemployment. And so- Yeah, but we were in a pandemic. I know, but that was also, uh, that exceeds what our entry-level positions actually pay here, historically. All right, so- so you know, you're so saying the people so, so, so wait, 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 come here. So you're saying the people who receive these benefits, which were rightfully owed to them, they were making more than the folks who were on the other end helping them? I mean, where are you where are you going in, with that? In a lot of cases, yes. Uh even though we did enhance people's pay, we gave uh, hazard pay also. Uh obviously we had to uh, immediately start doing overtime. Uh some even in some cases enhanced overtime, depending on uh, the day of it. But yeah, I mean when you talk about an agency that's been underfunded. Uh, for the last 10 years, mm-hmm. um, it's hard to really kind of get your, I mean, that's one of the things we've been complaining about for 10 years, which is kind of funny. You hear legislators say to us now, well, you've never asked for anything in that, you know, in the past. And I'm like, well, y'all haven't been paying attention because go back and watch the videos. Uh, we've been asking for money, you know, to help us, you know, for the last 10 years. And your budget was cut last year and it was not yeah. restored. Now, let, so let, let's, let's just brings up the speed. Is there a backlog, Commissioner, from those seeking unemployment benefits who filed last year? I guess it's going to, well, no. Uh, I guess it kind of depends upon your definition of backlog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say that we are... Not not appeals, first, not appeals, but still waiting to be well, that's, processed. That, that, that's, the, that's the only place that, that, we, that we have uh, customers that are waiting in queue right now. Just appeals. And I'm glad you brought that up. Appeals and benefit determination. Now, benefit terminations is kind of like your first line of appeal. If you get put into that category, uh, understand, if somebody quits their job, typically you're not eligible for unemployment. If you get fired from your job, typically you're not eligible for unemployment. Now, you can still apply for unemployment. Mm -hmm. All right. So at that point, you do have to be set up uh, to have a hearing in order for us to get the information, why is it you think that you should get unemployment? And then that person who is doing that hearing has to apply current law and current rules to that situation. I'm glad you brought it up because when you spoke to the Senate subcommittee, you told lawmakers that another issue is many of this year's claims, some of this year's claims aren't eligible for assistance. Take a listen. At the very beginning of um, the pandemic, the vast majority of people who were applying for unemployment were people who were lack of work or employer filed claims where they were, you know, being sent home temporarily and then recalled right back. And, you know, those are fairly easy to do. That has changed dramatically, especially in the last half of this past year and then first part of this year. Uh, Right now, um, you know, we've had uh, uh, roughly about a, you know, 
in just the first two months, I'm not even counting this month yet, uh, but in January and February, we had over a quarter million people apply for unemployment benefits. Okay, out of that number, uh, we had less than 30,000 of those people were actually layoffs. Now, Commissioner, every situation is different, and I know it varies state by state in terms of who can receive benefits if fired. In Georgia, do you have any idea of what percentage those denials are reversed on appeal? Is it a very, very small number? Uh, Only about 22 percent. What would be a reason that you all would approve or they would win their appeal? Okay, well, take for example, mm-hmm. um, I can give you one that I helped with just the other day. Sure. Uh, an individual was hired by a, a company. It was for a technical job. Uh, and and I, I don't have the, I'm not going to get the exact specifics. I don't want to give the person away, and they would probably be angry if I knew I was putting a case out there. Mm-hmm. But let's just say they were hired to use a certain type of computer program, okay? Uh, and that's what they were hired for. However, a few, like a month or so after they were hired, Uh, the company decided they wanted them to work on a different computer program, one that they were absolutely unfamiliar with. Uh, This person, you know, uh, ended up getting fired because they were not productive. And that's what the employer put down. And of course, they were honest when they applied and said, I was fired from my job. I wasn't a layoff. And so we had to have a hearing for them. But in, you know, uh, in the hearing, it came out uh, that this person had all, a whole bunch of emails that they had gathered where they had requested repeatedly to be trained on this new software, uh, and they were denied the training. And so they had, to their best of their ability, they had tried to rectify the situation, and the employer did not. Uh, in this case, uh, even though they were fired for uh, job performance, they were granted unemployment because the employer uh, made no effort uh, to help train them or fix the situation. Let's talk about this, Commissioner, because as you know, and by the way, if you're just joining us, I'm joined by Department, Georgia Department of Labor Commissioner Mark Butler. As you know, in this Senate Bill 156 that I talked about would create a chief labor officer. The Senate did end up passing it on crossover day after tabling it, but now still has to go through the House. This is viewed as you not being able to do your job. What's your what's your response to this? I'd say that you have a lot of people who don't even understand what our job is over here. Uh, and quite frankly, my employees are extremely offended by the bill uh, because it points directly to them. I mean, these are people that have been working, I mean, tons of overtime. Uh, this is not an easy job. Just like I explained right there, you can have dozens and dozens of different types of, you know, situations where somebody could be denied or actually granted, you know, outside of a regular layoff. And you, it takes, you know, a long time of training and experience to know all the different rules and the laws. Mm-hmm. It is not a computer system that can do this. This is, you have to actually, you know, set somebody's ears, eyes, and judgment uh, to take a look at these cases. And, and right now, when we're seeing 80% of the people that are individually filing for unemployment are doing so, and it is not a layoff in their case. You know, that workload goes to a fairly small amount of people that are qualified to take care of that. But it's, but this is a measure that's not directed at creating more claims representatives. This is a measure that strictly relates to leadership, do you feel betrayed by Republican well, lawmakers? Yeah, too? well, you could say, yeah, I, yeah, I understand that, but it, I mean, there's nobody that they could hire that has got more experience and more knowledge than what we have. I mean, what do they want us to do? They're going to pick somebody, and then we have to train them how to do what we do. 
Uh, and furthermore, it doesn't take any of uh, my powers and responsibilities away from me. You basically, they're trying to create two captains for the same ship, which, you know, is about as useless as, you know, as my grandpa used to say, tits on a bull. It's not going to go anywhere. I mean, it's not going to, it actually doesn't achieve anything. Well, uh, basically what we're seeing is, is we're, we're seeing some um, legislators who are angry about maybe somebody not getting benefits that they think should, uh, but legally we can't. If they want to change the rules and the laws of who can get and who cannot, then that's what they need to be concentrating on. Well, with all due respect to your grandpa and, grandpa and that analogy, I don't think it's very, uh, it's a good thing to say, but I want to do ask you this. Do you feel betrayed by your fellow Republican lawmakers who are, in favor of this measure, who supported this measure, who proposed this measure? Well, I don't know if I use the word betrayed, but I can tell you this, that uh, very few of them have ever reached out to to learn and figure out what's going on or ask me any questions. There's been a lot of statements made saying that certain people have reached out to me multiple times, and I can tell you that they can't prove that because they never actually have. Uh, I know that some of this is motivated by trying to help out certain buddies that may want to run for office to, to give them kind of a boost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do know that there's been several of people in leadership that have pressed us to pay people uh, that weren't qualified and they didn't like the answer. Uh, but you know what? We have to apply the law and we have to apply the rules. If they don't like the laws, they don't like the rules, then that's what they need to concentrate on. But I'm not going to I'm not going to change my ethics uh, to, to go with what they want us to do who's been pressuring you can you give a scenario if you don't want to mention oh, there's been several you know I, I don't play those kind of things right there i mean mm-hmm. they know who they are and they know that that they've asked for certain things i mean we even had a group of legislators told us at one point one of their suggestions was just go ahead and approve everybody up front and then see if they're eligible that's extremely illegal these, you can't do that these we were, would get in a lot of trouble mass these were republicans What's that? These are Republicans, may I ask? Republicans and Democrats. Okay. Have you talked to Governor Kemp about all these challenges that you've just told me and all of our close listeners? Oh, yes. Listeners? I mean, yes. Have you told oh, yes. him that we, you we, need we, additional we, resources? Have you said, look, what do you want me to do if I don't have what I need? Or oh, is yes. he, or is we, he uh, part of the problem? When I first came into office, <clears throat> first came into office uh, we asked for the return of our administrative assessment money. Uh, we have requested our... Uh, employees be considered essential uh, so we can actually get them uh, the inoculations. Uh, We even had a request uh, to um, uh, ask if all the uh, state departments uh, donate one uh, HR specialist uh, to us to loan us for a temporary time because HR specialists, we can actually, you know, quickly train up to do some of these hearings because they already have the background Mm -hmm. in what it is that we do. Uh, of course, you know, uh, these other agencies say they can't do without a lot of this. Uh, but the problem is, you know, people think that you just hire somebody off the street. I mean, if you go out and look, all employers right now are struggling to hire their open positions. And that's going to include us, too. Uh, and to get somebody to be proficient, to actually do the basics, just, you know, processing the claim as it comes in the door. It takes a minimum of three months training mm-hmm. to get somebody to that point. Now, you start talking about doing uh, some of these eligibility hearings and appeals. You're talking about years of experience and training unless they already have a background in either HR or in possibly labor law uh, to be able to put them in that. Let me ask you this. 
Can you admit, under your leadership, that the, some measures and processes should have been done differently? And maybe you're at a point to change that and maybe change how you're leading this department? Is that something that no. you will own, Commissioner? No, I don't think there's anything that you can do different that would have changed the outcome on this. Take a look at our performance. Measures. Nothing at all, all, Commissioner? No. I mean, I think everybody's kind of missing the boat on the volume of claims. Everybody goes, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you can't handle 4.7 million claims with 1,500 people. And they don't look at how complicated all this stuff is. They don't look at the laws and the rules. I mean, it's easy from the outside when you're ignorant about what it is somebody does to say, well, you should have done this. You should have done that. And I have yet to hear anything from any legislator um, that actually would be helpful uh, at all. I want to be fair about this because Closer Look has received a lot of feedback prior to our interview, including from someone with working knowledge of the department. And they said, quote, the department is more concerned about economic development and not actual labor. It's our fault if some folks lose everything. That was one. Uh, also, internally, communication is bad. How do you respond to those? Well, I mean, I don't know where you're getting this. And so responding to uh, anonymous supposed, you know, uh, claims. I mean, we communicate with our employees all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, their supervisors uh, communicate with all the employees all of the time. And you remember this time last year, we had to be focused on economic development. We were not seeing hardly any claims being filed. We were seeing the fewest amount of claims being filed since the 1970s. Mm -hmm. The funding for uh, UI activities was at an all time low. And so the funding is not there. Uh, to do a lot of that, but we had been updating, uh, you know, all of our processes, uh, finding ways to do things easier because, uh, you know, our main goal has been to push everything to online or on to, through call center for UI because that's 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 where everything is going anyway, and we had uh, been doing that. Uh, you take a look at, you know, and people say, well, y'all have an outdated computer system. Mm -hmm. No, we don't. That is untrue, and the people that are saying that do not have the knowledge base and to understand what it is that we've been doing here. Take, for example, Florida, who is our neighbor to the South. They have a fairly new unemployment system built mm -hmm. by a uh, worldwide recognized company. They ranked 50th on on-time payments and we're 22nd. And I so just, we must be doing something correct. And I just wanna be fair because even as we're speaking and the emails and on Twitter, and I know everybody has a different situation. But you're saying, I want to be clear, for those folks who filed pandemic-related unemployment claims or maybe even unemployment claims from last year that are not held up in an appeals process, they have been processed. Yes, we are. When you say process a claim, somebody is sending in their claim. Mm -hmm. It's either lack of work or it's a quit and fire and it's going to go to a hearing. Okay? Mm -hmm. Right now, we're basically at a 24 hour turnaround period and have been for months. You have a lot of people who are using bad terminology for misunderstanding. And just because somebody says something on Twitter, it doesn't mean what they are saying is true. I'll give you an example. That's I had fair. a case the other day. But they think you what you're saying isn't true. So, you know. Well, you know what? I can actually back mine up with actual facts 
That's but I difference. have to, but commissioner, I want to be fair. I have had emails from people who will forward me all of their they they our listeners, they write, they log every time they call. You know, they have been persistent with information. And look, I know it's not every claim. But when, can you understand folks listening to you saying, Comm- Commissioner, come on. Someone just tweeted. Uh, well, look. if you want to be fair, Rose, yeah. let's go ahead and let's be fair, because you're talking about anonymous things that you're saying. You're not actually putting a name with anybody on here. Uh, I can I can give you countless examples that I've dealt with in the past week. I had a legislator call yesterday and he was demanding that somebody's hearing be rushed up because they have not received one payment in nine months. When we wait a minute. When we pulled up their claim, they had received all their payments until January. And the reason why they stopped is because of a new hire stop. All right. It was for a legitimate reason. But they told this legislator something that was totally untrue. I had a man just the other day who sent me an email saying, mm-hmm. I've done everything right. I was laid off. Here is my separation papers from my employer showing that I was laid off. And I'm like, OK, you know, that was back in November. This should have been done. Let's mm-hmm. go take a look into it. And when we looked into it, the employer had responded to us electronically they did not lay this person off. This person was fired, was fired. And it, hey, it was very well documented. The The document that this person sent to me, uh, that was an official government document that was signed supposedly by the employer. It was an absolute forgery. That person at that point, when they sent that to me, had committed a felony. And you should follow up on that. Now, before we get out of here, I want to give listeners, I want to make sure they understand you because I think it's fair. You're saying, and you can you know, however you want to put it right now, what is the average length of time, as you know, for processing unemployment claims? And you're telling me, you've just told me, unless it's an appeal situation from last year, all those pandemic related unemployment claims that aren't on appeal, they've been processed. You're oversimplifying the process. If you're a layoff, you know, when your claim comes in, we process it. We get your information, we check it against stuff, and then it goes through it goes through a process of checking with your employer, verifying information, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. A actual layoff should see payments start releasing after the eleventh day. Okay. If you were not laid off, all right, but now your claim was processed in about 24, 48 hours. That means you can start claiming your benefits. All right. Now, if you were not a layoff, if you quit your job or you were fired, which typically most cases do not get approved for benefits, Mm -hmm. then you're going to have to go and you're going to have to have a benefit eligibility hearing. So it's kind of like an appeal right off. And that takes time. That takes time. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely because when you're having 80 percent of your claims filed right now or that particular type of case, there is no there is no automatic way to do that. Mm -hmm. That is a person has to look at the facts of that case, gather the facts, not only from the individual, but then they have to turn around and talk to the employer and go, okay, this person is telling us that this happened. What is your side of the story? And then they make a termination. And then if you're not happy with that termination, whether you're the employer or the claimant, then you can appeal that. And then it goes into another bucket. Uh And then if you're not happy with that decision, it actually goes to the board of review, which they don't work for me. They're appointed by the governor. And then if you're not happy with that, it actually goes on to superior court, which obviously we don't have anything All to right. do with. Let me ask you this real quickly. Got about 20 seconds. Will you seek re-election, Commissioner? You know, I always wait until the year of, just like I have every single time I run for election, ever since I was elected to the House back in 2003. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. Then. I don't know what my family situation is going to be then. That is fair. Mark Butler, Georgia Department of Labor Commissioner. 
Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for answering the questions. I really appreciate it. Sure. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, you can find it online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.